in the general area up here, do you notice anything different? Don't want to look at me. Anything up here that you notice might look different. Knew you'd catch on eventually. Reverend Ken Belchinski. That might have been my name. But in the 1950s, my dad changed his name. I don't know how many of you remember Mad Men. Watched the show about the advertising game in the late 50s, early 1960s. My dad's comment on that because that's when he came into advertising on Madison Avenue publishing. He said it's a really accurate depiction of what that time was like, except for one thing. We didn't drink that much (laughs) at lunch. (laughs) He said this show nails it, what it was like. And one of the things that this show was unstinting about was about the anti-Semitism, the racism, and the misogyny that was endemic to that time and to that industry. And so my dad, as a young man, wanting to make his way into this new profession, was told, was advised, and ultimately decided that Sanford T. Belshinsky was the wrong name to have if he wanted to make his way. And so he changed his name legally to Sanford T. Belden. Advertising has been good to my father and good to my family. My dad was one of the fortunate ones who was able to find his way, you know, into the club. Many don't, can't, aren't allowed. And if you've ever heard the stories or maybe you've been one of these people who is allowed into the club, you know sometimes the river of crap you have to swim through and move through to be allowed in at all. In some ways, it's kind of like, when you hear these stories, it's kind of like a hazing. The things people are put through. Now, I know especially for those of you who have children, and especially those of you who have college-age children. I imagine many of you know this person in this face, Tim Piazza, who was hazed to death when he was pledging a fraternity at Penn State. I won't go over all the details, but they are horrifying. And the legal process is still working itself out. And it seems perhaps in some disappointing ways, at least initially. If you've studied anything about hazing, and I've studied just a little bit, you know that one repeated sentence that comes up is this. Why'd you do it? Why did you individually, collectively participate in this thing that caused harm to this person or brought about this person's death? Why'd you do it? And the answer inevitably is because it was done to me. I did it because it was done to me. So therefore, I'll do it to others, unthinkingly or callously. I'll do it to others. And so the cycle 
uh, cruelty is perpetuated. One of my favorite quotes that talks about healing, real, honest to God, true healing in this life. Indeed, it was the title of my message, the Sunday after last year's election, is from Father Richard Rohr, a Catholic contemplative, who says that in our journey through this life, ultimately, we either learn to ourselves transform our suffering, and if we don't transform it, inevitably what we will do is transmit it. Transform our struggles or transmit them. And I think hazing, unfortunately, is a particularly vile expression of that truth when the suffering and the pain is not transformed but simply transmitted on to others. Now, this is a vital message, particularly at this time of the year. Yesterday, as some of you know, was the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. I grew up, as many of you know, now you see it in my name, <laughs> the name that wasn't. I grew up in a Jewish family. This is one of the few times that we went to synagogue. <laughs> it's one of the few times we actually followed the Jewish law to the letter of it. We fasted very often. In Yom Kippur, there is an invitation to take a full inventory at the end of the eight-day period, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, known as the Jewish New Year. Now, it wasn't always so. Long, long time ago, and whether you have studied ancient Israel, which I don't think a lot of you probably have, but this part I imagine you know. This was the practice. That's a goat who it was said the people would cast their sins upon and send that goat out into the wilderness to eventually be killed. This, my friends, is the origin of something that we all know. This is the scapegoat. This is the goat who took on the blame of all the other people in the community wanting to get rid of what was theirs that they did not like about themselves. That's the origin of the scapegoat. There's all kinds of psychological, spiritual reasons, social reasons why we have scapegoats. And I think it intrinsically has to do with what this message series is about. That as human beings, we all have frustrations, we all have failures, we all have things we would perhaps rather not face about us. And so religions at times have come up with rituals, as magical thinking as they might be based, that somehow we can just clear ourselves out and get rid of the parts that we don't like. But here's the thing. This isn't very fair to the goat, is it? <laughs> In fact, it is pretty awfully evil. And it's even more evil when it happens to other human beings. But there's a whole other part to it as well, too. It doesn't work. <laughs> Communities that would think they would cast out the worst parts of themselves and somehow be rid of it and restored to wholeness. No, they're doing just what Richard Rohr says. They are transmitting rather than transforming. They are just paying the misery forward and on to others. And so here's the cool thing about the tradition in which I grew up. Judaism evolved. You don't hear about Judy, Jewish communities anymore casting their sins upon the scapegoat and sending them out into the wilderness to die. The practice of Yom Kippur evolved from a priest-centered tradition who took the sins of the people and put them on the goat and sent the goat out, and there we go. No. 
the heart of Yom Kippur became about the whole community. Upon recognizing that this life is filled with failures and frustrations and that all of us want a fresh start and to add another F in here, but not my favorite F word, which I won't say. I won't say favorite, but perhaps overly used. (laughs) The center of Yom Kippur became forgiveness. The recognition that because this life is filled with failures and frustrations, we all need forgiveness if we want a fresh start in this life. As a community practice, that's what's so powerful in traditional Jewish communities. It's a community practice, not just separate individuals. Very often the way forgiveness is talked about in our culture, in our society, and especially amongst, you know, spiritual but not religious folks, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, what I mean is that something is lost when spirituality is divorced from community life. Like very often we'll see on Facebook or people will share on Facebook something like this, you know, about like what's it like to hold on to anger, you know, and keeping us from, from being able to forgive. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. Very me-focused. It's very individual-focused. And the thing is, if you go to fakebuddhaquotes.com, Buddha did not say that. And some of these are, like, so absurd. You know, like, I, I, go and look it up. I mean, I, I, could, I could go down that rabbit hole right now. I'm not going to. But really absurd stuff. That is very clear that someone said it, you know, not 2,000 years ago, but, like, two years ago on Facebook and stuck a Buddha name on it, and all of a sudden the Buddha said it. No. Go to fakebuddhaquotes.com. It's really good. They do their research. But here's the thing about this quote. It actually is related to the Buddhist tradition. Buddha Gosa, who was a teacher several centuries after the Buddha, this is the original quote from a Buddhist sacred scripture. By doing this, by holding on to anger, by not being able to forgive, you are like a man who wants to hit another and so picks up a burning ember or excrement in his hand and so burns himself or makes himself stink. And so here's the thing that's really interesting is the face, you know, uh, social media being what it is, the Internet being what it is. How did they leave a poop joke just laying there? <laughs> they focused on the fire, but not the poop. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> but here's the thing, the way that that gets interpretive, interpreted. It's just about when it's shared on Facebook, the individual letting go. And while that form of forgiveness can be very powerful, it's been powerful for me in relationships in which there is no hope of restoration. The fact that forgiveness is so often spoken of in this way, just as an individual letting go, actually makes me sad. Because it does not speak of healing the divides between us. It speaks of a loneliness and a distance that is far too familiar with many people living in this culture, in this society right now. Individual forgiveness is powerful. But the Yom Kippur teachings point at something else. When it's a community event, when we take the time to engage in the practice that we have all failed, that frustration is a part of all of our lives, in our communities, with our families, with our friends, with each other. And we name that, and we claim that, and we understand that. And we're invited into a way of working with it. The practice of 
forgiveness is a chance for a fresh start. Not an obligation, an invitation. And all real forgiveness really begins in telling the truth about how we've been hurt and how we've hurt others and how we haven't fulfilled all the things we would have loved to have fulfilled. One of the most beautiful parts of uh, Yom Kippur is what's called the Kol Nidre part of the service, which roughly translates to all vows. And it's an acknowledgement, not just in the year past, but in the year coming, that we're going to take vows to care, to love, to have compassion, to serve. And going in, we know that we are going to mess that up. (laughs) The vows that we take, we're not going to totally fulfill. I was especially mindful of this yesterday when, as Kathleen talked about, I was with other members of Wellsprings in Washington, D.C., for the March for Racial Justice. I was particularly mindful of that because of my Jewish heritage, and even more so as an American. As an American whose identity in many ways has been the dominant identity of who counts in this society. And so that was part of my spiritual intention yesterday, To recognize the vows we take as Americans, we hear a lot about equality and justice for all. And the truth is, if we take even an honest, one honest look, and not just the past, but also what's here, right here, right now, how far we have fallen and continue to fall from these vows. I went into this day, yesterday, with this desire to notice how far I fall from these vows. And that's the value of a march. That's the value of a community practice. That we have the invitation for a fresh start. And of course, one march does not get it done. (laughs) But that this is ongoing work, this work of atonement, this work of restoration, that hopefully what can happen is we can start to bring to an end these cycles of suffering that have been endemic to this culture and to the society and that has shown up for some of us in our very families and in our very households in which we grew up. It holds out a promise that there is a way of return freed from the cycles that have held us all down together, albeit in very different ways. Now, Yesterday was Yom Kippur, and yesterday was this March for Racial Justice. And something really powerful happened that wasn't even part of the day, but was something written about on the website of the host group. The host group acknowledged and apologized that they scheduled this on Yom Kippur without thinking about it. They said it betrayed a breakdown in relationship with the Jewish community that they were mindful of and would seek to to restore. And the truth is, there were a number of self-identified Jewish folks at that march yesterday, one of whom I remember holding a sign praying, this Yom Kippur, I'm praying with my feet. And mature folks from the Jewish community acknowledge the same thing. Hey, relationship goes both ways, so maybe we haven't done our part in terms of connecting with communities of color. See, when we engage this discomfort of what it is to recognize that that we failed, that frustrations are part of our life, this allows the opportunity for a fresh start 
doesn't mean it will happen. It means it's the only way it can happen. Now, one of the reasons the date was chosen yesterday is that it speaks of a historical event that I wasn't taught about when I grew up. It's the day in 1919, I believe in the town of Atlanta, Arkansas, where 200 African Americans who were fighting and speaking for their rights were massacred by the white citizens of that country. Now, if you pay attention and go deeper in American history, you know that this is not the only story like that. These traumas get handed on generation to generation, even beyond the question of the fact that this was a whole community that had its wealth, its property, its people wiped out. This is a truth of this country that many of us don't want to face, (laughs) that many of us would say, no, all our traditions are great, (laughs) but they're not. And it can be uncomfortable for someone like me who wasn't educated with this stuff, where this stuff was left out of the official account, to have to face that this too is the history of who we are. And so this capacity to grow Discomfort, to be comfortable with discomfort, is so critical right now. Because when I go back to probably what was going on with those ancient Israelites who picked that one goat out and said, you're the bad one, it was their own discomfort that made them do it. It was that that made them pick out the scapegoat and said, you're the one we can blame to take care of our own anxiety. There are so many things from the past that still dog us, individually and collectively. You know, uh, some of you know I'm in this social work program. I got to tell you, it is opening my eyes. It's transgenerational trauma, and epigenetic change, and adverse childhood experiences, and all these things that get passed on and passed on and passed on until we are brave enough and bold enough to name them and know what's going on in our midst. But the truth is we don't want to pay too much attention to it. We've got this really silly, really immature understanding of, the, of American individualism that the minute you start to scratch the surface of it, you see it doesn't exist. And please hear me, folks. I'm not saying I don't believe in uh, individual initiative and I don't believe in aspiration. I don't believe in visionaries. What I do believe in is that there is a social location for everything. This influences who I am spiritually on the deepest level. As someone who practices part of the Buddha way, he said when the Buddha had his enlightenment, he recognized he was one with everything. Now, that's not the joke about, you know, make me a hot dog, one with everything, that kind of thing. It is this understanding that life itself is relationship. And I don't know what I believe about the afterlife. I'm a hopeful agnostic when it comes to perhaps something beyond this here and now. What I do know is that the Buddha saw something clearly, that all the causes that came before us lead us to this moment. And so it has me asking questions of myself. Whose anxiety is this? Whose depression is this? Whose hunger insatiably so for alcohol to get rid of the pain and the anxiety is this now none of those are excuses but all of them create insight for me to be able to see that who we are 
who I am, who you are, comes from a whole bunch of causes, many of which we cannot see. And by the way, one name change in the early 1950s doesn't get rid of it. It's still here. And so this is the practice. Part of Jewish ancestry or not. Yom Kippur continuing or not. Not excuses, but inviting ourselves to take responsibility. That all these things happened that helped to make us collectively and individually for good or for ill. How is it to sit with that? How is it to feel the discomfort of that at times? How is it to come home? Come home to the fullness of your own being. Because to come home is the only place we can live. It is the only place from which we can take true responsibility. Home is the only place from which we can have a fresh start. To end these cycles, to be a part of restoration for ourselves and for all creation. If we say we believe in a better way, and I do, then this is our work. If I hurt you in the past year, I am sorry. And if you hurt me in the past year, I forgive you. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. This spirit, this Holy Spirit, this breath, connected to all the other breaths that have ever been taken, we know we are a part of it all, and the all is a part of us. What better definition of spirit could there be? And so awakening to this fact, awakening to this fact, gives us this invitation. This breath right now has never been taken. It may be related to what's come before. And so if we wake up to this very breath and this very moment, this conscious step, this conscious breathing in, this conscious breathing out, then there is the possibility of a fresh start, this realization. Not that we are a product of our environment, but we are shaped and formed by it. May we be a conscious people, an awake people, an aware people, a people who do not believe lies, a people who believe in truth and awaken through that truth to the healing and wholeness that is our divine birthright. Amen.